All right, final lesson on singlehood two, courtship and engagement, and we call this words of wisdom. This subject is really so broad, I don't think I could possibly contain it, not even in a book. The issue with such a, a, a desperate, such a dire situation, such an important topic as, of mar- marriage and wedding is you can't make any hard, fast rules because people get legalistic and they'll miss the heart of God. So we've done our best to kind of give generalities. Anytime we would give a hard, fast rule, we're going to assume everybody's coming from the same condition, meeting in the same condition, going in the same direction, and that's just not the case anymore. Our society, modern society, is so diverse, it's so messed up, it's so spread in every direction, it's people are coming from broken homes and from broken marriages, and so we're trying to give the, bo- the best, most broad generalities so that the future generations can honor God, and I'm sure we've offended some of you while we've been in here and even made you think you wish you had this teaching before you got married, but you did the best that you could with the light that you had, and every generation should get brighter and brighter and brighter. And honestly, a lot of this I write with my daughters in mind, and now my my, my future in-laws in mind or son-in-laws in mind. So I'm not doing this to pick on anybody. If you have felt that way, you're not that important. I wrote this with future generations in mind. You are that important, but I didn't aim it at you. Not that I know of. Maybe I did. Maybe it's like a Freudian thing, kind of subconsciously. Words of wisdom is this final lesson. Once again, we say this with every one of these lessons. The purpose behind this entire teaching is to develop and present a safe and honorable pattern. So this is a pattern. It's a template for modern Christians to follow as they cautiously journey down. And it's tricky. It is a tricky road of love and marriage. You hear it many times. Love will make you stupid. This is very true. Love will make you stupid. It, it, it numbs. If you were a ninja, you're a ninja. You go, you fall in love, all your skill goes away. You, you, you'll walk through stoplights. You'll, you'll, you'll almost get hit by a truck just so in love. So we're trying to give you wisdom because love, it really makes you dumb. You have to train and train and train before you meet that special one so that once you fall in love, you don't go make dumb decisions. It's almost like the military. They train and train and train for gunfights because once the adrenaline hits... They're not as tactile. Their senses are heightened, but they don't know what to do with it unless they train and train and train. So, words of wisdom, that's the title of this lesson. And I call this uh, Wisdom, Patience, and Honor. So that's what we're going to talk about in this final lesson on courtship and engagement. This will be a broad thing, but I think if you'll judge any courtship or or, or engagement relationship through wisdom, patience, and honor, you'll be hard to make wrong decisions. I give my judgment concerning the three most necessary ingredients to a successful courtship and engagement. This is my wisdom. This is my judgment. And those three necessary ingredients are wisdom, patience, and honor. And uh, the modern generation does not like those three words at all. They don't want to make wise decisions. They don't want to be patient. Patient is like the worst word to this modern generation. As we just, we related recently, a modern study, a modern, modern scientific study just released said that American youth have a shorter attention span than a goldfish right now. Goldfish is like 9.8 seconds, and teenagers today have a 9.3 second attention span. That means they have no patience. They've brought up on a cell phone where they can ask Google any question and get 3 million answers in .0067 seconds. They, don't, they wouldn't be able to handle the 56K dial-up from 20 years ago. The modern generation doesn't even know how to spell encyclopedia or how to go to the library and find one. And don't even get me started on the Dewey Decimal System. Patience is what this modern generation lacks in spades. And then, of course, honor. 
if the, if the single believer will constantly judge their blossoming relationship by these three biblical criteria, God will be glorified and hurt will be avoided. And that's really one of the things we're trying to avoid here is calamity and hurt in relationships that don't pan out, uh, dating relationships that don't pan out, engagements that don't pan out. We're trying to minimize hurt. Pastor Nancy Dufresne in her book about being led by the Holy Ghost, she's, one of the things she said was being led by the Holy Spirit is so critical so we can avoid unnecessary pain. And when we're not led by the Holy Spirit, we will always incur unnecessary pain. And we're not even talking about death, dismemberment, just pain, emotional pain, embarrassment, humiliation, shame, that kind of pain. So let's look at wisdom. First section, wisdom. Love makes people dumb. Oh, so dumb. I've been there. I mean, you, even, you know, you have a baby, you fall in love with that baby, you'll make some dumb decisions just because you love that baby. Therefore, biblical wisdom must be your guardrails down the twisty, windy, emotional road of falling in love. And if we can see wisdom as guardrails, we won't be upset if we run into it and it makes us spark because it's really saving our life. We need guardrails. Anybody that doesn't is going to get reckless down a dangerous road. Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all you're getting, get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing. It is the chief thing. It is a thing to be prized above anything. That's what the word means, principle. So in any movement, any action, any decision-making, any phase of life, the number one thing we're going to in prayer and Bible study is wisdom so we can set up safety parameters and guardrails in doing what we do. This is not legalism. This is safety. This is wisdom. When you begin to court or fall in love, treat it like falling out of an airplane. You need wisdom like you need a parachute. (laughs) Seriously, when you begin to fall in love, treat it like you're about to jump out of an airplane. And you need to go to the book of Proverbs and the Gospels and start looking for some parachutes. The more parachutes, the better. I mean, you ought to have a parachute on every little pocket in your body. A parachute on your knees, a parachute on your ankles, a parachute around your head, a parachute on your back. Because when you fall in love, you're falling. And sometimes you don't get up. And you have, don't have life lock to, lifeline to push the button and say, please come rescue me. Everybody here knows somebody that fell in love with somebody they shouldn't have. And it cost them. They went through a painful divorce. Maybe they were abused. Maybe they were betrayed. And the folks around them could tell this is not who you should be falling in love with. And yet because they cut off the voice of wisdom and they separated themselves, they fell to their own calamity. Proverbs 120 through uh, 22, New American Standard says, Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. Now notice, if you look at this, Wisdom is everywhere you go, and she is not quiet. She is not hard to find. Wisdom is at every crossroad of life, standing there, shouting at you the right way to go. And th- th- these two verses, or these two passages here, they really point out the fact that when we suffer, it is our own fault. When we suffer calamity, we didn't stop to hear what wisdom was screaming at us at every crossroad where it says she shouts in the street, in the city square, at the head of the noisy streets, at the entrance of the gates. This is everywhere you go in life. Wisdom is there. The wisdom of God is there telling you, go this way, not this way. But what happens is when you fall in love, you get your heart 
sometimes hell-bent on what you want and you'll walk right past wisdom and she's trying to hand you out a gospel tract that says don't go here she's trying to hand you a map that says go this way and we'll ignore it because our heart is desperately wicked incurably sick and it is often hell-bent on what we want and when it's love you'll you'll follow the homosexual line of wisdom love is love and i can't control who i fall in love with and if i can't control who i fall in love with well then this must be god So many Christians do that. You sound just like the homosexual agenda. I can't control who I fall in love with. Therefore, wisdom is I get to pursue what I want. She says, how long, oh, naive ones, will you long, will you love being simple-minded? Notice that when you don't get wisdom, the Bible calls you naive and simple-minded. And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Now, when we don't stop to get wisdom, that's the issue we're dealing with. We're dealing with being naive. We're dealing with being simple-minded. We're dealing with scoffing. We're dealing with hating knowledge. That becomes our testimony. And that's why our next section after this is patience. Uh, I tell Rick and Patty right now, with everything they're doing with Teen Challenge, I tell Rick, we don't drive fast through a new city. We just slow down. We just chill out. Because there's no rush. If you've never been here before, why are we in a hurry? God knows you've never been here before. And you don't know more than God, so just chill out. This is not the Autobahn. You're not Mario Andretti. This is not Formula One racing. You don't know what you're doing. And honestly, in those racing, they just drive in circles. That's why they can drive so fast, because I know where I'm going, in circles, which defines a lot of Christian lives anyway, just going in circles. Proverbs 8, 1 through 4 says, Does not wisdom call and cry out, and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights, beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the doors. Here again, wisdom is everywhere you go, every time you have to make a decision. Wisdom is there, lifting up her voice in the highest of places, where the paths meet. That means at the crossroads. She takes her stand. She's not going to bend for you. She is wisdom. She does not change. And it doesn't matter what the modern, postmodernist expression is wisdom is always the same because god possessed her in the beginning and proverbs 8 says by her he formed the worlds and the created the cosmos she doesn't change i don't know why she has the pronoun of she but it is called a she over and over again uh, wisdom is referred to as a woman at the entrance of the door she cries out there again she's not whispering wisdom is not hard to get you can't say i just didn't know what to do you're a liar you didn't want to know what to do You can't say, I didn't know. The Bible will judge you and God will say, no, 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 no. My word said everywhere you went, every time you made a decision, my wisdom, my spirit was there crying out to you saying, do this, don't do that. Every time we see wisdom in these two passages, she is crying out loud. She is not some old church lady whispering on the back row. She's got the megaphone. She's the Turner Burn preacher on the street corner. She is screaming out to save us from naivety and pain. And you have to just truthfully plug your ears to walk past wisdom to make dumb decisions. It's all because your heart is already set. You cannot get your heart set on anything but the gospel and what the gospel tells you to do. Everything else, you've got to stop and get wisdom to add to this equation in your heart. If you don't get wisdom, your heart will get set on the wrong thing. You'll suffer loss and you'll blame God. In fact, even as Proverbs 19 says that uh, the heart of man divides, devises his path and then when it falls apart he rages against god you don't blame god for your stupid you blame you 
I was in New Orleans one time, and I was at a fancy restaurant, and I walked past this table, and there's three people there, and I decided to witness, well, the Lord told me to witness to them. So I witnessed to them, and the second I walked past them and began sharing the gospel with them, it's a clamshell booth. It's kind of one of these weird hoity-toity places in New Orleans. Every booth was a clamshell. For, I just remember this very clearly. But the girl in the middle, she plugged her ears while I shared the gospel. That's what Christians do all the time when they get their heart set on what they want. And wisdom is sitting there trying to evangelize them. And they say, and they plug their ears. You cannot do that. You have to be open to anything you disagree with if it's in the Word. In fact, the stuff you disagree with will help save your life. It at least gives you a balanced approach. Don't surround yourself with yes men or yes women or yes friends. Surround yourself with people that love you that will scrutinize you and make you the best you can be. She cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. She's crying out, not just men, but women, mankind, that we would make the right decision. Wisdom sits at all the crossroads of life where the paths meet to give people the help they need to make the right decisions. Honestly, with the spirit of wisdom, we should never make wrong decisions. If we have the spirit of wisdom and if we're patient, we don't ever have to make decisions that cost us months or years or pain or suffering. There's no reason for it. Unless, of course, we isolate ourselves and start to march after our own desire. Wisdom is loud and obvious, not silent and subtle. Wisdom will be there every step of your developing relationship to help you make the right decisions. Wisdom will be there. Wisdom will be there every step of whatever your relationship is. You just have to make sure you're doing everything the Bible tells you to do. So I conclude each of these little sections with a little um, wise questions to ask in my personal thoughts. So we, we won't answer these, but these are just questions worth asking. Maybe, maybe you're already married, so you could apply this to other areas of your life. But for those of you that are single or dating, and we have a couple folks in here that are marching towards marriage, These will still be good questions to ask you. Number one, am I mature enough mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and responsible enough financially or spiritually to take on the burden of a romantic relationship? One of the reasons we don't promote dating among our teenagers is they're not mature enough to get to class on time. They're not mature enough to turn in their language arts homework. They're not mature enough to read Of Mice and Men on time for the English teacher. You think they're mature enough to handle the the burden of a dating relationship and another person's soul? They can't even handle themselves. Are you mature enough to take on the burden of a relationship? This is what wisdom asks. Number two, is the one I'm interested in equally mature and responsible? Sometimes people fall in love with the uh, the chronic needy person because they like taking care of people. And we don't have time to go into this. Uh, and a lot of this has been driven by Josh Schmidt-Motzen because he sent me about 25 questions a year ago and said, I want a curriculum, I want a curriculum, I want a curriculum. And then he just reminded me of that email and I pulled it up and I had only maybe answered a third of the questions in that 25-question email. But one of the things I, I want to point out with marriage is when you marry somebody, you need to marry somebody that's going to make your life easier, both a man and a woman. You're not, you shouldn't be marrying somebody you have to take care of like a child the rest of your life. Because you get married to do more for the kingdom. Don't marry a needy person. You will be miserable, miserable, miserable. Don't marry a needy person. You ought to be able to say of your spouse, they make my life easier. Amen. And honestly, let me be very misogynistic according to the Bible. The woman's job is to serve the man and keep him in the gates of the city. 
And if you are not determined to serve that man, you don't need to get married. You need to marry a lesbian. No, you shouldn't, but that's what your heart is. Your job as a woman, you're a helper. You're created to serve and do whatever he needs you to do so he can get to the city gates to affect civilization for Jesus Christ. Don't marry a needy person, guys. You should never marry a needy woman. (laughs) And don't ever marry a needy guy. Don't be a mama. You're supposed to be a wife. Number three, if we date, court, pursue each other, will we be a boost to each other or a burden to each other? Sometimes they're like two sinking, drowning people. They cling to each other in their self-drowning and you only go to the bottom faster. I never marry someone who's drowning in life. You can't help them. They'll pull you down. You're not strong enough. Are we strong enough to swim together or are we two nearly drowning souls clinging to each other desperately not wanting to drown? Not going to be a good relationship. Does my significant other try to pull me away from my established relationships and responsibilities or do they encourage me to honor them? These are questions of wisdom. Because if they start pulling you away from what has made you who you are, they are a dishonorable wretch. Because what they're saying is, I fall in love with you, but I don't respect or appreciate anything that's made you who I've fallen in love with. They're a wretch. And I would run for the hills if you're mature enough to do so and your heart isn't too attached yet. Don't isolate yourself during your courtship and engagement. We teach that in Singlehood One. Don't isolate yourself. If you're isolating yourself, dropping the ball, you're not mature enough to be in a dating or courting relationship. So section two, patience. We're talking about words of wisdom, the three areas, the three ingredients to a necessary courtship and engagement. And again, if you're married, these will work in other areas of your life too, especially your marriage. Patience proves all things. Man, all you have to do to freak out a millennial is tell them to wait. All you have to do, wait. Patience is so vital to life, it's actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's so critical, you have to have the Holy Spirit to help produce it biblically in your life the closer humanity draws to the end of the of time the more impatience and the more impatient mankind becomes so we have to know that as we're marching towards the climax of the ages and the return of jesus christ uh, time is running out uh, you're going to feel it in the spirit realm humanity is going to become more and more impatient i want it now 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 i want happy now i want to be skinny now i want to be rich now it's all impatience it's a total lack of the fruit of the spirit the body of Christ is eat up with it too. They, they, they don't want to ex- exercise self-control. They want to have a surgery to lose weight. They, they don't want to do Proverbs and all labor, there's profit. They want to get rich quick pyramid scheme. They don't want to prove who God has for them. They want to meet and marry in, in six weeks because they're impatient. This is the end of time. A hundred years ago, it was not like this. It was courting. It was working hard. Nowadays, our kids get out of college. They want to live like mom and dad the first year out of college. And you forget mom and dad took 35 years to acquire all of that. They think, I got to be like mom and dad. No, no. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. That's the word of Zechariah the prophet. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Live in an apartment. Drive an old beat-up car. Put some money in savings. Pay off your school bills. There's something wrong when, when 30 years after college, you're still paying off college. Just saying. Because you don't want to put your money towards that. You want to buy a new car. You want to buy a new flat panel. You want to buy a new watch. You want to buy a new purse. You want to, you want to play the part trying to keep up with the Joneses. It's impatience. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible still demands patience. Courtship and engagement must be walked out with 
patience. I have always said after I learned a lot of hard knocks in my early 20s, I would rather be five miles behind God than one foot in front of him. Because it's easier for him to redeem the time and restore the time and you play catch up than him try to steer you with wet rope. And if you're out ahead of God, you're trying to steer him. And Corinthians says, who has known the mind of God that he might advise him? You can't advise God. Stay right behind him. Drag your feet, if anything, just don't do it with a rebellious heart. Say, Lord, I'm just not sure. I'm all, Lord, I'm going to take a little bit longer if that's okay. Because I've said this for years. If it's the will of God today, it'll be the will of God five years from now. What's your hurry? Flesh. Flesh. That's your hurry. <laughs> Luke 21, 19. In your patience, possess ye your souls. That's what Jesus Christ told the disciples in the last days when they'll be persecuted and executed. He said, but all these things must come to pass, but in your patience, possess ye your souls. It's still a good word for us today. The impatient soul, mind, will, and emotions, the impatient mind, the impatient want to, will, the impatient set of emotions can devise some pretty foolish actions to get what it wants and then slap the Bible on it. Well, this is God. Well, how come you're violating 16 other verses? You can, if you know the Bible well enough, cherry pick it to make it say what you want it to. But it doesn't mean you've ever caught the heart of God. You can never go wrong with patience. Reign in your soul through patience, like a bit in a bridle in a horse's mouth. Flesh is awfully impatient. The whole of humanity, the whole of our culture pushes us faster, faster, quicker, quicker, quicker. How many of you have bugged out of a website because it took longer than two seconds to load? Yeah. And I remember in 2000 having a computer and having to wait for dinner time for a page to load. God have mercy on your soul if it had pictures. Because it would go... And slowly the picture would... produce, And then it's like, that's, that's not what I'm looking for. Back. And then Netscape would spin forever. Or web crawler. Or any of those things that you've never heard of because you were born in the 90s or 2000s. Yeah. We, we don't know how to be patient anymore. We want our life to be as quick as a Google search. It can pull up two million results. You only look at the first three. Impatient. Don't let desires and dreams possess you. You should be God-possessed. Not desires, not dreams. In your patience. Patience should be what possesses your soul. Hebrews 10.36, For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. This verse says, just because you've done the will of God doesn't mean you're going to instantly get the promise. We are sometimes trained improperly through our culture that we think the second we do what God tells us to do, we should have the reward instantly. Well, I did what you want. I should have it now. Lord, I've kept myself clean. I should be married now. Lord, I was polite to her. I should be able to get engaged now. Now, this says after you've done the will of God, you still have to chill. Wait. You don't know how long it's going to take. Paul said through, I believe Paul was the author of Hebrews. He said, you have need of patience. Even 2,000 years ago, he was telling the Christian believers, you're not patient enough. They didn't have internet. They had, if they wanted water, they had to go to the city well and lower a bucket and raise up a bucket and do that about 20 times and then give it to all their servants to take back to the house. And if they wanted to eat, they had to go find the cow and then butcher the cow 
and then prep the cow. And then they had to go find the grain. Uh, they were not an impatient people, but he said 2,000 years ago, you're impatient when it comes to get, getting what God wants you to have. What about us today? I mean, every day we get more and more impatient just because of the nature of mankind. So this is a good verse. Today you need to just relax and be patient. Sometimes I, you'll find that if you'll be patient, some of your desires will just expire and go away and you'll look back and say, oh, why did I even want that? Why was I chasing that? That has added nothing to me. Sometimes if you'll be patient just to prove your desires, see whether they're an oasis, a real oasis, or whether they're a mirage. Because a lot of your wants are mere mirages. And if you'll just wait, the heat of the day will cause them to evaporate. And you'll say, I didn't really want that anyway. Thank you, Lord. That was going to be a lot of wasted time, money, and energy. And now I can move on to more pertinent things. Doing the will of God doesn't mean you will instantly have the promise. Likewise, just because you meet the will of God, her or him, doesn't mean you need to get married in a month. Be patient. I have, uh, in 10 years now of pastoring, I've helped a lot of people get married. I've married a lot of people and counseled a lot of people. And I would probably tell you, 20 or 30% of them have come to me after the fact and said, we should have listened to you. We should have waited. We were not ready to get married and you told us as much and we didn't like that and we did our thing anyway. One in three. No skin off my back. I'm not the one that stays up to 2 a.m. screaming, throwing stuff at each other. Patience is a virtue the church lacks. Be patient. Proverbs 19.2. Desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? King James says, he sins that hastens with his feet. You get in a hurry, instant sin. You get in a hurry, instant sin. But notice it says desire without knowledge. Here we're talking about marriage. So you want to get married. That's biblical. That's proper. But you have to load a bunch of knowledge into that desire to, to, to fill it out, to discover it, to understand what that means. It's like saying the Lord has called me to the Air Force or to be a Marine or to be a Navy SEAL. Great. Fill that with a whole lot of knowledge. Because just because you're 12 years old and called to the Marines doesn't mean you're going to be there tomorrow. And you should probably spend the next 10 years preparing to go to the Marines. See, we get these desires, and because our culture teaches us it's our way or no way we can have it today, Amazon Prime will get it to us tomorrow. The credit card makes sure we can afford it. And Instagram and Facebook make sure we can lie about it. We think God works the same way. And what we need to do is when a desire begins to enter into our heart, we need to prove it with the Word of God, and we need to begin to do research both in the natural and in the supernatural about what that entails. What does that mean? If I'm going to be a Navy SEAL... What, what kind of physicality do I have to have? What kind of shape? What kind of psychological condition are they looking for? I would be reading books. I would be training. I would be studying the Bible to see what God has to say about me being in the, in the military. What is, I would know all the scriptures. To have a desire and no knowledge is not good. One translation says, zeal without knowledge is dangerous. And then what happens without knowledge, you start chasing that desire, and the Bible says you'll miss the way. You'll totally miss the right exit ramp. You'll, you'll go the wrong direction. And what's that going to produce? Loss of time, tremendous pain, tremendous hurt, loss of resources, whatever that may be. Desires must be balanced and proven with sound biblical knowledge. And I might even add natural knowledge too. We're all for reading the Bible. We need to read the Bible more. But there's a lot of good knowledge out there that can be acquired through books, through good websites, 
where you can, you can find somebody who's gone on before you in the same arena you're drawn to. There's a, a myriad, a multitude of good Christian books on marriage, courtship, discipleship, engagement. And you study those and you see what God has to say about you because you're all different. Don't get in a hurry to chase your desires. You'll miss the will of God every time. And it may cost you a couple years to get where you're supposed to be. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. He that believeth won't get in a hurry. He that believes in Jesus does not get in a hurry. That basically says faith is not in a hurry. Faith is not in a rush. Courtship and engagement are acts of faith. And that faith says you believe this relationship is the perfect will of God. If you believe it's the perfect will of God, you don't have to get in a hurry. Prove it. Just chill. Just prove all things. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5 says prove all things. Cling to that which is good. Prove all things. That's the word for judgment. Judge everything and keep that which is good. If you have to judge everything, it assumes that you're not going to be perfect in everything. You still have to prove it. Uh, we just purchased the tickets for our next mission trip to Kenya and Uganda. We got a great deal on them. And I, I feel good about the, the trip. I got a lot of things I want to say and check on the scudders and, and do some stuff with Pastor Tom Abungu there in Siaya. But up and even until the day we get on that airplane, I will be open to walking away. I will prove all things. I will not get on that airplane if I don't have peace. I do that every trip. Because money, I don't really care about money. I care about my life. I got a little saying, live to preach another day. <laughs> live to come home to your wife and girls. Prove everything. The second you're 100% sure of everything except Jesus Christ, you've got to be a little careful. We only know in part. You've got to be willing to let the Lord steer you every step of the way. If your relationship is the will of God, it will be the will of God five years later. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. And besides this, now look at this passage here. This is ought to convict all of us. This wore me out when I was writing this. Give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. Add to your virtue knowledge. This, uh, this is the Christian mandate. This is what we do in our Christian maturation process. Give all diligence, which means it takes a lot of work. It doesn't just happen by coming to church. Add to your faith. That's what you got when you got born again, Christian faith. Add virtue. Add to virtue, knowledge. Add to knowledge, self-control or temperance. Add to self-control, patience. Add to patience, godliness. Notice godliness doesn't come till much later in the equation. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. Notice it's, an, it's a maturing process. Faith is what everybody has the second they get born again. Once you get born again, though, you've got to start being discipled and gain some Christian virtue. And once you get some Christian virtue, then you begin to get knowledge and understand some things. And then, once you understand some things, you've got to get self-control working. Self-control will help produce patience. The reason we become impatient is we have no self-control. We can't hold off on the purchase. We can't hold off on the vacation. We can't hold off on the engagement. We can't hold off on whatever the thing is. And then to add to patience is godliness. Notice that self-control, patience, and godliness are lumped together, and godliness is built upon self-control and patience. You cannot be godly without self-control and patience working in your life. 
What is lust but a lack of self-control and patience? If it's sexual lust, you're going to start doing things to gratify your physical body and your sex drive that's apart from the will of God. That's called sin. And it's called unholy. But if you have self-control and patience, you won't get into sin. You'll walk in godliness. Now apply that to marriage. Apply that to engagement. Apply that to courtship. You have to be able to be patient and have self-control so that you can have a godly relationship with that opposite, a person of the opposite sex. So you can have a godly engagement, a godly courtship, a godly marriage. Don't let your desire and drive to get married undermine your godliness. So wise questions to ask and some personal thoughts. What's the big hurry? Sex? Sex is awesome, but it's not the foundation of marriage. If that's the case, the harlot has married 100 men a night. Now, sex is what you have at the end of a prosperous marriage, at the end of a day, when, when your marriage is healthy. But if that's your foundation, if that's your driving force, uh, the Bible would say you're a mere beast, carnal, sensual, driven by appetites. I mean, even dogs have sex. doesn't mean they have meaningful relationships. Amen. Is it loneliness? Is that the hurry? You're lonely? Well, if you're lonely with friends, you'll be lonely in a marriage. Because the issue is not people or friends. The issue is you. It's inside of you. Is it insecurity? Are you getting married because you're insecure? That's not going to fix it. Marriage does not fix insecurity. Marriage will bring insecurity to the forefront. You'll find out you're more insecure than you realized. Is it money? Some people, back in the 80s, it was real big for girls to want to hurry up and marry the rich guy. They want to marry the doctor, marry the lawyers, the big yuppie drive. Is money your ambition? Don't marry for money. Money comes and goes. You ought to be able to say in your marriage, honey, if we have nothing, as long as I have you, I'm a world overcomer. I'm a conqueror. I'm a king. You and I, we can, go, we can handle anything together. If you can't say that, your marriage is not healthy. Because marriage is not about stuff. It's not about sex. It's not about possessions. It's not about a house. It's not about a car. It's about the two of you together taking on the world with Jesus Christ. Amen. It's good preaching. For the man, are you patient and diligent enough to save up and buy her a decent engagement ring? We covered that last lesson, the modern bride price. We don't really have that in our society today, but as much as I've studied and taught this now, I think I'm going to set a bride price for my two girls. I'm going to prove that kid. This is my daughter. I've spent 24 years or 22 years investing in her. Here's the bill. $290,000 in education alone and food and clothing. This is what she's worth to me. What are you, is, this, is she this valuable to you? You're not going to get her some little Fruit Loop ring, are you? What are you going to do to prove to me she's as valuable to me? Because I gave birth to her. My wife did. I raised her. I defended her. I fought for her. I trained her. You're not just going to be some ding dong. Pretty eyes and muscles come steal my girl from me. I will hunt you down like a dog. I like the modern bride price. You prove to me, boy, that she's as worth as much to you as she is to me. Because I know how I'll take care of her. And I don't know you yet, son. (laughs) Yeah. I'm getting fired up. That's why I pray for my son-in-laws every day so that I'll like them when I meet them. Number four, for the woman, can you wait for him to prepare a place for the two of you to live? Can he provide for you or will you be providing for him? It's not right for the woman to provide for the man. And that's something you discover during dating and courtship and engagement. I mean, is he a... I like, 
One of, the, one of the black pastors said one time, he said, of course, black culture has its own issues. He said, let me tell you the number one qualification before you fall in love, honey. J-O-B, job. Make sure he has a job. And you need to just ask yourself, are you going to be providing for him, sweetie, or is he going to actually be able to man up and provide for you? That's why the bride price is critical. It proves to the father he has the ability to get a job, make money, not spend all of it on himself, but save up and buy you an engagement ring the modern bride price, to demonstrate he has what it takes and he is willing to sacrifice for her. See, a lot of young people, they get married and the boy still wants to play video games and waste all of his money on him because he's selfish and hasn't grown up. He's old enough to have a baby or make a baby, but he's not old enough to be a man. Yeah, you don't marry those kind of people. You let them mature. They have to age. Aged cheddar tastes better than Velveeta. Don't go marry Velveeta, sweetie. Marry some aged cheddar. <laughs> Are you in a hurry to move to the ne this next phase of life or are you content and patient to finalize and maximize your singlehood? Which sometimes, and this is, we don't have time to cover this, but we get so impatient, we want to hurry up and move on to the next thing God has for us. We totally miss the stage that we're in. And we fail to understand that where we're at is by design so we can learn as much and gain as much experience and all the skill set we need for the next phase. And if you just blow through this phase, you'll, you'll fail in the next phase. So are, are you want to hurry up and get married because all your friends on Facebook are getting married and you feel like you're inadequate? What makes you, what makes, what makes you think they're in the will of God? And all your friends that are getting married now, how many of them will be divorced in two years? National statistics says 50%. So we don't compare ourselves among ourselves and in doing so we're unwise. And we reject that American psychological disorder called FOMO, fear of missing out. We rock with the Holy Ghost. How you leave one phase is how you'll start another. If you leave singlehood, insecure, in debt, lustful is exactly how you'll start marriage. Insecure, in debt, and lustful. The right thing at the wrong time can produce a lot of pain and it's still the wrong thing. I want to I add pain because you'll still do it because it's, it's, it's the right thing. It's the wrong time. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you. And you don't know what kind of crazy decisions you'll make when you're in the midst of a lot of pain. It could be the right thing. You got it out of order. It caused a lot of pain. And then you veered off and never served God again because of the pain of your soul. That's why we want to just walk with wisdom, walk with patience. And in this last section, we want to walk with honor. Honor can be summarized as demonstrating that something or someone is valuable to you. When it's valuable to you, you'll treat it with honor. To some degree, being honorable means you put other people's wants and needs before your own. You got to do that. The value of being honorable in your courtship and engagement cannot be understated. You must be honorable from the time you meet her or him to the time you say, I do. Honorable in, in how you treat each other. Honorable in how you treat your respective families. Honorable in how you treat each other's bodies, which means you shouldn't be touching it because it's not yours yet. I mean, if you got little hands going places and spiritually you're, you're molesting your, spa, your sister or your brother because the Bible says that's your brother in Christ, that's your sister in Christ. Until you say, I do, you're feeling up your sibling. Ew. Just think about it that way. If you want to, not too long. We got to move on. <laughs> the value of being honorable cannot be understated. You must aspire to be as honorable as possible. 
So 1 Samuel 2, 30, this is our famous verse we always preach on. God said, for them that honor me, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You have to honor God first and foremost. God made marriage. God made you. God made your, your lover. Therefore, you better include God in this whole thing. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll be sunk. Your future will fail and you will suffer unnecessary pain if you forget to honor your creator in this process. That means you don't start dating and you fall out of church. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. Or they come to church to find that one and the two of them grab a hold of each other and wobble out of orbit. Oh, they start slacking in their responsibilities because now that I found a man, I don't have to be faithful to the house of God anymore. No, that's not going to work for you either. John 8, 54 says, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. So notice the issue we have is that we're good at honor. It's just called self-honor, selfishness. Your decision-making during courtship and engagement cannot be self-honoring. It must be God-honoring, mate-honoring, and family-honoring. Self-honor is called selfishness. So when you start dating with the, your perspective and your eyes on marriage and, and engagement or you're engaged, you've got to start looking at your future in-laws and honor them. You've got to start looking at your mate and honor their desires, their dreams in a sense. Do they want to go to school? Do they want, what do they want to be? What do you want them to be? You've got to talk about all this stuff because maybe she wants to be a nurse and you want her to be a stay-at-home mom from day one. You've got to resolve that. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of issues. You know, the man is in charge. He's the head, but he's not a dictator. He's not a, a controller. All this must be walked out and discussed and prayed about. We don't have to. I mean, there's just so much to cover with marriage. Romans 15, 2, NIV says, Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. That means uh, you're not interested in just pleasing yourself to, to get gain yourself. That's selfish, selfish relationships. 1 Corinthians 10, 24 says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And again, when you're, when you're courting and engaged, it's not about you, you, you. You're looking at the welfare of your fiancé now. You're looking at the welfare of their family. You're looking at all the changes they're going to have to make. If you start off an engagement selfish and always about you, 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 and your stuff, and you, and you, that's going to drag into your marriage, and your spouse is going to feel second rate, second class your spouse should never feel second, your, your fiancé should never feel second class to your hobbies, to your possessions. She should never feel like the bass boat's more important than, than her. She should never feel like deer hunting is more important than her or the kids. He should never feel like sister is more important than he. Uh, he should never feel like mama is more important than him. This is not proper. The Bible says when you get married, you cut everything off in a sense and you cling to your spouse and you guys are supposed to be best friends. And it's okay to go deer hunting, but your heart says, I wish she could be here with me. I wish she liked deer hunting. Maybe we'll FaceTime. Be quiet. I'm going to mute you. <laughs> yeah, they sh they, neither spouse should ever feel second class to junk in your house. Why gain the world and lose your marriage? Amen. Got to keep moving here. Honor is demonstrated by the preferential treatment of others. An honorable person is concerned about what's best for their loved one. They are concerned about their reputation, the appearance of evil, their spiritual health, and their divine destiny.
So for the man, your, your intention must be to lead her in paths of righteousness all of your lives. When you lead her in paths of righteousness, you'll burn stuff to the ground if you have to. You'll get rid of deer hunting. You'll get rid of the bass boat. You'll get rid of the caving equipment. Whatever it takes to lead her in paths of righteousness, you'll make the sacrifice. If you're not willing to, you're not a husband. You're just a roommate that has sex occasionally. For the woman, your desire must be to make his life easier so that he can be known in the city gates. If you can't make his life easier, what is your purpose? Your job is to make his life easier so he can focus more on influencing the city for the gospel. Part of loving each other is desiring the absolute best for the other, no matter what they may look like. Biblical love is not self-seeking. Ephesians 6.2 says, Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Honor does not say obey. Uh, I, want to, I want you to hear the big distinction. It says honor, it does not say obey. Because what if mom and dad wants you to go buy a pound of crack for them? What if mom and dad wants you to rob a bank? What if mom wants you to lie to dad? You can't obey that, not even as a five-year-old. It's wicked. But you must honor, even if they're the biggest, worst pagan, even if mama is a stripper prostitute, you have to honor her. Which at the very least means you pray for her every day. Honor does have a minimum payment, and that is prayer. And desire that she not or he not go to hell. The fifth of the Ten Commandments is about honor. The fifth commandment does not command obedience, but it commands honor. Honor is not always obedience, and one can obey without being honorable. You can obey and not honor, but one can honor without ever obeying. All parents involved in the impending union must be honored, and their concerns, wishes, or input must at least be heard. You're not stealing a spouse. You want to make sure you have mom and dad's blessing and you've included them. This is honorable. This does not necessarily mean that all of their wishes or wants must be obeyed, but they must be honored. And again, this assumes they're Christians, they're reasonable. Again, they're not some kind of mafia member. They're not part of Al-Qaeda. They're not part of some demonic cult. They're not some weird liberal Democrat. (laughs) It's a joke. Some of those are better than the conservative Republicans. In the most extreme situations, it may be all that you can do to honor your parents is to pray for them. Please keep in mind you are not just getting a spouse, but you're also getting in-laws. You don't want to burn that bridge before you say, I do. And let me, let me add my two cents. I am totally against eloping. Totally against it. I think it's dishonorable and disrespectful. Because never do you elope and get married in a church. I believe you must get married in a church. I believe the justice of the peace is, a, is an affront and an insult to God Almighty. Because you're asking a potential pagan to consecrate your marriage the, the Africans won't honor your marriage. I won't say all Africans. I know some Africans. If you get married outside of the church, they won't recognize your marriage. They want you to get married in the house of God because it was God's institution, not the justice of the pieces. Amen. In fact, Hannah was telling me the Africans she served with in Tulsa, if folks came to their church and got married at the justice of the peace or got married as pagans, they required them to be remarried in the house of God just to make it legit. That's a pretty strong cultural standard. I I don't disagree with it. We're not going to force that, but I I see the heart behind it. Don't elope, because when you elope, you don't allow mom and dad to get to give away their little girl. When you elope, you don't let dad be there. When you elope, you, you, you don't allow friends and family to be there that prayed for you, that counseled you, that discipled you. It's so disrespectful, and it's always done to save money, which comes back to the impatience the lack of self-control, and the, you're telling everybody she's not worth it to me. 
It's awfully quiet. Like somebody said, though, nobody wants to argue against the high standard. I'm totally against eloping. I think it's disrespectful in every regard. Honor God. He's the one that you need. Honor the local church. They, you need them too. Would you guys all elope? You're all sitting there just so dead silent. Like I married some of you. I know you didn't elope. <laughs> Wise questions to ask and personal thoughts last minute or two. Are you aspiring to be honorable in this season of your life? Withdrawing from family in the body of Christ is not honorable. Late night visits can produce an evil, an, excuse me, an appearance of evil. Don't destroy your good reputations. This is dishonorable. My pastor Darren used to say, nothing good happens after 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I remember when we were engaged and uh, we were engaged and uh, I got, I went out of town, but Manda's car broke down and I let her borrow my truck while I was out of town. But I said, Park my truck at the far end of your apartment complex. Do not park it outside your apartment because it'll look bad. And I don't want people to think I'm sleeping with you because I'm not until we're married. Then we will, but not before. And just my truck parked in front of her apartment. Everybody knows my truck. They'll think something naughty's going on. I'm out of town. She needs the truck. Her car's in the shop. Park it at the far end so that they at least think I'm with somebody else. Not a girl, a guy. Amen. Park it in backwards so my bat sticker is covered up and nobody knows it's my truck. Schmidt, was telling me, he said, Pastor, I have to tell you, I drove past one of those sex shops the other day and I saw your Tacoma and my heart sank until I didn't see the bat sticker. Then I knew, oh, thank God, Pastor isn't there. <laughs> thank God for the bat sticker on the back of my truck. I'm also mindful of it when I drive past people and growl at them for driving so slow, being from Overton County with a handicap tag because they see the bad sticker. Do the future in-laws feel included? Remember, you're marrying the son or daughter they have raised and financed for at least 18 years. Don't reject them or overlook them unless they are absolutely unreasonable pagans. And some people can never be pleased. The in-laws shouldn't feel like you're stealing their child from them. Don't ever let that be the, the testimony. Has your courtship engagement pulled you away from God, your church, your friends, or your parents? This is not a good sign. This is very dishonorable. A healthy marriage will succeed with the inclusion of God, your church, your friends, and your family. Uh, however you launch your, your engagement and your marriage is exactly how you'll live the rest of your life unless you repent. So you've got to make sure you do it honorable from start to finish. You'll never go wrong walking in wisdom, patience, and honor. These three ingredients will cause any area of your life to flourish for those of you engaged or wanting to get married, I wish you Godspeed because you're going to need a lot of help. Father, we thank you for these lessons. Help those that listen to them in the future be blessed by them. Save a lot of heartache and pain in the lives of these young folks. May we glorify and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.